From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Canada's federal government has a plan to dump coal and price carbon, and it stands on the shoulders of provinces. One thing that's very important to remember is that both in the Canadian system and the U.S. system, states have the brunt of the jurisdictions having to do with the fight against climate change. Quebec set up its cap-and-trade system with California while we had a national government that would not even say the words climate change. Also, Pennsylvania has its own cap-and-trade system for controlling air pollution, but the trading rules meant to clean up the air could actually be making it dirtier. I don't see that as improving the air quality to any great extent. It's like three steps forward, 2.99 steps back. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. To keep promises made at the Paris Climate Summit, Canada is unrolling a master plan to deal with climate change, including a phase-out of coal by 2030 and a phase-in of carbon pricing by 2019. Provincial premiers and indigenous leaders plan to meet with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on December 9th to seal the deal. Mr. Trudeau also nixed a controversial new pipeline to carry heavy tar sands oil from Alberta to the West Coast. But he also approved the expansion of two existing pipelines that would carry the heavy crude from Alberta to refineries in British Columbia and Wisconsin. Mr. Trudeau says the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion planned by Kinder Morgan to the West will meet the highest standards of environmental protection. Aside from the many and obvious economic benefits, we approved this project because it meets the strictest of environmental standards and fits within our national climate plan. We will require that Kinder Morgan meet or exceed all 157 of the binding conditions set out by the National Energy Board. As for the phase-out of coal, all but four provinces have already stopped using it or committed to do so. Quebec has led carbon pricing with a cap-and-trade program that is already linked to California and set to begin shortly with Ontario. And British Columbia already has a carbon tax. David Hurdle is Minister of Sustainable Development, the Environment, and the Fight Against Climate Change for Quebec, and he's on the line now from Quebec City. David, welcome back to Living on Earth. Great to be with you, Steve. What effect do you think phasing out coal will have on trade relations between Canada and the U.S.? We have a new president coming in who really likes coal. I think it's a clear signal from the Canadian government that from a national Canadian perspective, our federal government is serious about the fight against climate change. And that's a change from the previous federal government. But one thing that's very important to remember is that both in the Canadian system and the U.S. system, states have the brunt of jurisdictions having to do with the fight against climate change. Quebec set up its cap-and-trade system with California while we had a national government that would not even say the words climate change. And we were able to develop this and have Ontario come on board and BC set up its carbon tax. And so while our federal government at the same time was pulling out of Kyoto, was pulling out of, up until Paris, what was the most significant international agreement on climate, we were still able, as provinces, to move ahead with significant moves on the fight against climate change. And we're seeing what we saw in Marrakesh with the president of California, 
Washington State, Vermont, and several other states. There's still this will to work and to collaborate with Canadian provinces, with Mexico. And also we have the Under Two Coalition, which is over 160 governments from around the world that have all committed to reducing emissions by 80 to 95 percent by 2050. And that's representing over a billion people in the planet. And that includes California. And actually, it was an initiative that was started by California. So it shows you that at that level, yes, obviously, national governments have an important role to play in the fight against climate change. But also, I think it's important to stress that states, provinces, what we call in, in UN speak, infranational governments, have a major role and can still move ahead even if a national government isn't moving at the same pace. Now, as I understand it, all the premiers and the indigenous leaders will come together on December 9th to finalize the uh, Canadian climate plan uh, that Prime Minister Trudeau promised in Paris last year. What do you expect that plan to look like after that meeting? Well, all the environment ministers of Canada, including the federal minister, met in Montreal. I actually hosted them last month for a conference that was set to prepare this December 9th meeting. And so at that conference, all the ministers agreed on the basic principles of a pan-Canadian framework to coordinate efforts in the fight against climate change. Now, obviously, uh, certain provinces did not agree with the federal government's proposal to impose a carbon tax in the provinces that do not have a price on carbon yet, namely Saskatchewan. But since then, other provinces have announced that they will put a price on carbon. So now Nova Scotia, for example, has decided to choose a cap-and-trade system, which is similar to the one that was adopted by Quebec. Quebec is already linked to California's cap-and-trade system, and we already have the largest cap-and-trade system in North America. And the federal plan recognizes the Quebec, California system as a valid equivalent to a carbon tax. Let me be sure I understand this right. So there's an option then for each province. There is. You can go, you can go with cap and trade, join with Quebec and Ottawa and be part of the California system as well. Mm -hmm. Or you can have a carbon tax and the government, the federal government will set this carbon tax rate. Exactly. So jurisdictions like Alberta and British Columbia have already set up a carbon tax. So the criteria is the federal government says, well, the tax has to at least reach $50 by 2022, $50 a ton by 2022. So it has to be stringent enough because if your tax is too low, you're not going to be able to reduce emissions significantly. So it has to be high enough to force industry to reduce emissions. While a cap and trade system, the system already integrates reduction targets. So they're an effective way of not only reducing emissions, but also generating revenue to invest in transitioning your economy out of fossil fuels. By the way, Minister Hurdle, when it comes to a carbon tax, where does the revenue from that tax go in the Canadian system? Well, the Canadian system, the federal government has said if you use, if a province uses the federally imposed tax, well, then the federal government has promised to redistribute those revenues to that province. And so that province will have a certain form of flexibility into what it does. In BC, for example, their system has been revenue neutral. So it's redistributed in certain elements of 
transitioning their economy out of fossils, but also there are, for example, tax breaks or tax advantages to offset the impact of the tax on the consumer. While I was in Quebec, the cap and trade revenues are entirely reinvested in Quebec's green fund, which invests in programs to transition out of the fossil fuel-based economy, to invest in clean tech, to invest in an electrification of transportation. For example, through the, our green fund, so through our cap and trade carbon market revenues, we can offer an $8,000 per person rebate for anyone wanting to buy an electric car. We're also investing in a network of charging stations. We already have over 1,200 charging stations across Quebec. We're investing in waste management, for example. So we have different areas. We're about 30 different orientations through our climate change action plan, which spends the money which is generated from cap and trade. So, so far in, the, in almost three years now, we've generated over $1.4 billion through cap and trade, and that's entirely reinvested in Quebec's economy into clean tech, into adaptation measures, into mitigation measures in a wide series of fields. Now, since Quebec has been a pioneer in the cap and trade here in North America, you partnered up with California. How is that deal going right now? Well, it's going very well. I remember when we linked up in 2014, there were a lot of naysayers and critics saying that it wouldn't work. And we must say this partnership has been tremendous. I was in Marrakesh a few weeks ago for COP22, the International Climate Conference. I was there with my Californian counterparts, along with Ontario. And I think the best evidence of this partnership being truly a success is one, both parties have been able to harmonize. Think about it. You have two infranational states, two states from national countries, one from Canada, one from the U.S., coming together on cap and trade, speaking two different languages, and we've been able to harmonize our regulations, our laws, and we've had now nine auctions, credit auctions, because that's the cap and trade system. Four times a year, you auction off these carbon credits that companies have to buy to respect the laws and regulations regarding cap and trade. And these auctions have been very successful. The last auction, uh, just to Quebec, which was last week, we announced the results of the last auction. We raised $155 million, and that's a very successful amount. And another state, Ontario, is uh, ready to join. Is that correct? Yes. Ontario has not only announced that they will join the Quebec-California cap and trade system, but they've actually passed legislation. The Ontario legislature last spring passed legislature that will let Ontario not only set up its cap and trade system, but we're working right now to link up with Ontario and therefore Ontario will join the Quebec-California system. So now you're going to have over 50% of Canada's economy and over 60% of its population having the same cap and trade system, which will be linked to California. Last August, I was in Guadalajara, Mexico for the Summit of the Americas on climate change. I was there representing Quebec. Premier Kathleen Wynne of Ontario was there with me. And we signed an agreement with Mexico because Mexico has decided to set up its own cap-and-trade system, similar to the Quebec-California model, and has indicated its intention to not only collaborate with Quebec, California, and Ontario, but also to eventually link to the market. So you're seeing from a North American perspective, not only are you going to have over half of Canada with the same cap-and-trade system, California, which is the world's sixth largest economy, but now Mexico, 
123 million people wanting to join by 2018, 2019. And finally, another key component is China, which is obviously the world's largest polluter and the world's second largest economy has announced that they will set up a national cap-and-trade system by 2018. And we've actually been working with China on their cap-and-trade system. They've sent a delegation to Quebec twice now in the last year to learn from our system and to see how we can further collaborate. So would this mean that if I bought a credit in Quebec, I might be able to use it in my factory in China? We're not there yet. No, I think that's still a ways off. But I think you're seeing from a North American perspective that there's more and more collaboration, not only in Marrakesh, but throughout the past year, I've had very good conversations with my counterparts in several U.S. states. We've even had European countries interested in our North American cap-and-trade system. And so what I think right now where we're at with China is more about exchanging information, exchanging data, collaborating. And I think that's very encouraging for the future because ultimately what we're going to need to do, all the nations, all the infranational states, the national governments, eventually, once we get past this initial stage of adopting carbon pricing, I think the next step is going to be harmonization. It's going to be about how we make sure that our systems collaborate with one another. And I think that what we've started with China is very encouraging at that level. And I take it that not too long from now, I can buy a credit in Quebec and use it in Guadalajara or in Veracruz. <laughs> in Mexico, definitely. So what we're looking for right now, Mexico is already setting up a pilot project. And we've been working with them along with Ontario and California. And so there's definitely a path there to get us to a place where we will be linked with Mexico. But we're looking, maybe it'll take a few years but it's definitely in the foreseeable future. What about this kind of buzz on the Jungle Telegraph that New York State might jump into the collaboration with Quebec and Ontario and California? Well, that's an exciting development. Obviously, we are open to, to discussions there. It's a very exciting buzz. We've heard it too. We know there's been some interesting, let's say, discussions that have, have occurred leading up to Paris and since Paris. And so we're continuing those conversations, but we're definitely interested in exploring ways of working much more closely together. David Hurdle is the Minister of Sustainable Development, the Environment, and the Fight Against Climate Change. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Great to be with you, Steve. Thank you very much. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Time to look beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra of DailyClimate.org and EnvironmentalHealthNewsSEHN.org. Peter's on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi, Peter. What have you found? Hi, Steve. Let's start out with a new disease. It's new to me, at least, and it has links to extreme weather events. And since climate scientists say climate change will make such weather events harsher and more frequent, maybe climate change as well. Well, that sounds cheerful. 
It's springtime down under, and last week a heavy thunderstorm hit Melbourne, Australia's second largest city. That triggered an immense release of grass pollen, which in turn triggered something called thunderstorm asthma. At least eight people died, and the city received 1,900 emergency calls in just four hours. Thunderstorm asthma? Has this ever happened before? Yeah, it has, but only in recent years. The first reported outbreak was in 1987. It's been reported in Europe as well from olive tree pollen in Italy, as well as other instances in Australia, though none of them have been this deadly. A few years back, a U.S. government-funded study here in the Atlanta area found asthma attacks often increased immediately after thunderstorms. And so there's possibly one more link between health and extreme weather caused by climate disruption. Hey, what else do you have? Well, despite all the hand-wringing from the fossil fuel industry about how the Paris Climate Agreement will wreck the economy, one big oil CEO said last week that he doesn't think it will hurt their bottom line at all. Huh, well, that's kind of surprising. Talking about good news for the economy and the environment? Yeah, it does sound like that kind of good news, but it probably isn't. Royal Dutch Shell CEO Ben Van Burden said Paris won't hurt Shell's valuation because they'll be busy pumping every last drop of oil they own out of the ground and selling it. To be fair, unlike some of its big oil competitors, Shell has hedged its bets by investing heavily in renewable energy. By contrast, ExxonMobil has invested less in renewables than they paid their CEO in most years over the past decade. But even Exxon is beginning to look more seriously at things like fuel cell technology. Well, let's take our weekly look now back at environmental history. What did you bring us? Well, the legacy of U.S. nuclear weapons testing left its mark in several locations in the Pacific, in the Aleutian Islands, and of course, there were hundreds of U.S. nuclear blasts and British tests, too, at the test site north of Las Vegas. But 50 years ago this week, the second of two nuclear blasts detonated in a salt dome in southern Mississippi. Whoa, Mississippi in the 60s? Uh, I'm thinking more of the civil rights movement, not the Cold War. Yeah, the first of the two tests took place in October 1964, about a half mile beneath Lamar County, Mississippi. They called it Project Salmon, and its stated purpose was to turn an underground salt deposit into a huge cave. They evacuated 400 nearby residents, paid them 10 bucks per adult. The kids got out for half price at 5 bucks. Mission accomplished. They made the huge cave, but blast impact was much greater than expected on the surface. The Atomic Energy Commission received about 400 property damage claims after the blast, but they also received the thanks of pecan farmers in the area when thousands of pecans shook loose right in the middle of harvest time. So they got to pick pecans that year with a rake instead of a ladder, huh? Yes. Then 50 years ago, December 3rd, 1966, the second test took place inside the newly blasted salt cave. It was designed to be much smaller than the first blast, with a stated goal of seeing if a small nuclear blast could go undetected by other nations. So in effect, they were cheating in order to see if they would get caught? Yeah, sort of. The U.S. conducted its last nuclear test in Nevada in 1992, but of course concerns about nuclear weapons in the hands of nations, both big and small, remain as does an enormous cleanup project at the nuclear weapons manufacturing sites. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. The Appalachian division of Shell Oil is building a $6 billion petrochemical complex 
30 miles northwest of Pittsburgh, that will convert a byproduct of fracking into polyethylene, which is used to make everything from plastic bags to bottles to toys. This fracking byproduct is called ethane. And while this industrial facility is expected to create thousands of construction jobs and some 600 permanent ones, it is also forecast to increase air pollution in the region thanks to what's called an ethane cracker and the way its emissions are regulated. But first to explain the ethane cracker, here's reporter Reed Frazier of the Allegheny Front. You might be wondering, what is ethane and what is an ethane cracker? To answer this question for myself, I paid a visit to this guy. Hi. How you doing? Great. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Guts Fazer is a chemist at the University of Pittsburgh's Swanson School of Engineering. He explained ethane is found with oil and natural gas underground. At normal temperatures and pressures, it's a gas. And it comes from the same place that oil and natural gas do, fossils. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's old organic mass. I mean, as we always joke, it's dinosaurs, right? I mean, it's, it's old, it's plants animals from from geological times. There is a lot of ethane in the deep shale formations in western Pennsylvania. It's a simple chain of two carbon atoms surrounded by six hydrogen atoms. And ethane itself is not a very useful chemical, which is why it is being sent to the so-called cracker. Before it even gets to the plant, the ethane gets separated from methane. That's the main component of natural gas, the stuff that heats your furnace and burns on your stovetop. At the cracker, the ethane gets put into tubes and heated up to around 1,500 degrees. So as you heat it up, you basically make this molecule wiggle around more and more wildly. As the molecule wiggles around more and more, the bonds holding its atoms together stretch and get weaker. You can almost imagine it like, like when, you, when you have two kids that kind of uh, hold arms and swing each other around. I mean, if they get too crazy and too wild, at some point they just can't hold onto each other anymore and fly apart. It's sort of the same thing in a molecule here. <laughs> this is the cracking part of the cracker. When the molecular bonds fly apart, the atoms rearrange themselves into something new called ethylene. The two carbon atoms form a double bond with one another in this ethylene molecule. And this double bond is the key to why ethylene is so valuable. And this double bond is very reactive. And that makes ethylene an extremely useful and very, very widely used chemical. Ethylene reacts very easily with other chemicals, so it can be strung together in long chains. You basically take many of these double-bonded molecules and you use the double bond to connect them together, like, like Lego pieces. And when you snap all these ethylenes together, you get polyethylene. This is the ubiquitous plastic found in everything from milk containers to medical devices to detergents. You name it. You find it in, in medical equipment, in, in hospitals. You find it in the food packaging industry. I mean, it's, it's really... It's hard, it's almost impossible to imagine modern life without ethylene derivatives. And Shell's ethane cracker will be one place where all these facets of modern life start to form. Made from a gas found deep underground. That's reporter Reed Frazier. So now that we understand how an ethane cracker makes feedstock for plastic products, let's take a listen now to more of his reporting as he explains why there are concerns that this new petrochemical plant could degrade local air quality. Jim Fabizak is an environmental health scientist at the University of Pittsburgh. 
From his desk overlooking the Monongahela River, Fabazak pulls out a sheet of paper with a simple line graph on it. Show you at least one piece of data. The graph shows the amount of industrial pollution in Beaver County for volatile organic compounds, or VOCs. These are a broad class of chemicals that help form ground-level ozone, or smog. And there's a steady improvement. So from 1999 to current, there's been about a 50% reduction in VOC released by industry over time. Okay? Significant progress in air quality. But beginning in 2016, the line on Fabizac's paper starts to go up and up until the year 2021. That's when Shell's ethane cracker is slated to come online in Beaver County. Adding the cracker to this point in time, moving forward, brings the level of VOCs released in Beaver County by industrial sources to levels greater than what was seen in 1999. In fact, with a projected 500-plus tons emitted per year, the plant would be the largest source of VOC pollution in western Pennsylvania per EPA records. And it would be the third largest source in the entire state, behind an oil refinery in Philadelphia and a styrofoam plant in Reading. The next largest nearby VOC polluter is the Claritin Coke Works, checking in at 336 tons a year. In addition to this, the plant is classified as a major source of hazardous air pollutants, like benzene and formaldehyde, which can cause cancer and other serious health problems. Fabizac says these emissions are a concern, in particular because Pittsburgh's air already fails to meet federal standards for several pollutants, including ozone. But Shell and state officials say the cracker isn't a threat to public health. Mark Gorog is head of the air quality program for the Pittsburgh Regional Office of the State Department of Environmental Protection. He says since the Pittsburgh metro area doesn't meet federal air standards, Shell is installing modern pollution controls and a leak detection system in the plant itself. So, you know, the, the technology that they install has to, has to meet the latest and greatest, basically. In addition, the company had to show the DEP that its plant wouldn't make the air unhealthy in surrounding areas. You know, basically, they, you know, they, they modeled to show they will not cause or contribute to an exceedance of the national ambient air quality standards. And they did a risk assessment for air toxics, which showed there was not going to be an undue risk to the public. On top of these measures, the company will buy more than 1,000 tons of pollution offsets to make up for emissions that will come from its smokestacks, storage tanks, and flares. These offsets are called Emissions Reductions Credits, or ERCs. These ERCs work kind of like a cap-and-trade system. The theory is that Shell will pay a different company to clean up emissions at another facility by buying credits from a plant that's either closing or installing pollution controls. But under state law, Shell is allowed to buy credits from plants that are already closed. Fabizac says this means pollution that's been gone from the region will be coming back in the form of emissions from the cracker plant. I don't see that as improving the air quality to any great extent. It's like three steps forward, 2.99 steps back. For instance, a company is buying 70 tons of credits from First Energy. For two coal-fired power plant units, it closed in Armstrong County in 2012. It's also buying 100 tons of credits from First Energy's closed Mitchell Power Plant in Washington County, which ceased operations in 2013. Fabizac says... The best way for the system to work is if Shell would buy credits for future cuts to pollution. 
for, say, a company investing in pollution reductions at a power plant. If everyone's still staying in the area and operating, over time that results in slow decreases uh, in the amounts of emissions over time. The DEP, which approved Shell's plan, doesn't see a problem with how the pollution credit system is working. By state law, plants that close have 10 years to sell their emissions credits. Gorog says new plants have to buy about 15% more credits than they will actually emit. So if Shell wants to emit 100 tons of pollution, it'll have to buy credits for 115 tons. This means that gradually emissions will go down, Gorog says. You know, there's a certain pool of pollutants for the area, and gradually over time it shrinks. So, you know, over time, what the design does is, you know, shrink the pool of emissions, bring the area into attainment. This won't happen overnight. The DEP's plans call for the region's air to meet federal guidelines within five years. Krishnan Ramamurthy, acting director of DEP's Bureau of Air Quality, says there's another aspect of the credit program. It incentivizes companies to clean up. Because emission reduction credits are uh, is a really as a value, cash value. So particularly certain, uh, it's, it's a supply and demand. And if demand goes up for new plants to be built alongside the Shell plant, for instance, then the price of the credits will go up too and could encourage companies to close older, dirtier plants. So they can really um, put additional controls to justify uh, the, the control cost by selling some of the emission reduction credit in the program. Shell, in an emailed statement, declined to say how much it's spending on its emissions credits, but emphasized the plant was built on the site of an old zinc smelting plant, which had a heavy environmental impact of its own. Some of Shell's credits, in fact, came from that plant, which closed in 2014. With or without Shell's ethane cracker, DEP officials admit it won't be easy for Pittsburgh to meet federal air standards in the near future. That's because last year, the EPA enacted stricter rules for ozone. I'm Reed Frazier. Reed reports for the Pennsylvania Public Radio program, The Allegheny Front. Coming up, how a smarter soybean can help fight hunger. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In a moment, the blobs that are taking over the oceans. But first, here's this week's note on emerging science from Alex Metzger. Legumes, foods like beans, peas, and lentils, are among the oldest cultivated plants on Earth. Their historical roots date back 5,000 years to Mesopotamia, the birthplace of agriculture. These crops are packed with protein, fiber, and other nutrients, and currently account for 30% of the world's agricultural production. They also enrich the soil by converting nitrogen from the atmosphere into a form plants can use through a symbiotic relationship with root bacteria known as rhizobia. So many organic and conservation-minded farmers plant legumes instead of adding synthetic fertilizers to their fields. This nitrogen-fixing ability is the basis of a recent scientific breakthrough. Researchers at Washington State University have doubled the growth of soybean plants. They genetically modified the plants to absorb nitrogen faster, and so triggered rhizobia in the roots to fix more nitrogen. This chain reaction created bigger, healthier plants that produced more seed. 
There was also evidence that these modified plants could be more efficient in drought conditions. The researchers hoped that this breakthrough could increase global food supply while cutting down on harmful synthetic fertilizers and make for the best of both worlds, a better fed population and a healthier environment. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Alexander Metzger. And by the way, in case you're wondering, those new soybeans were not modified to make them resistant to pesticides. Most ocean species that are affected by humans are being harmed, not helped by our presence. From overfishing to bycatch to plastic pollution to warming ocean temperatures, we're changing the oceans in ways that are reducing the populations of everything from tuna to right whales to dolphins. Yet it appears that these threats to the very survival of many marine species may actually be helping one class of sea life, jellyfish. Australian-based biologist Lisa Ann Gershwin has a rare passion for this slimy, slippery, stinging sea creature. In fact, she's personally identified 200 new species and is one of the foremost experts on these intriguing but hardly cuddly beings. Speaking to Lisa Ann Gershwin at the New England Aquarium, Living on Earth's Helen Palmer asked her what is so fascinating about jellyfish. Oh, heavens, what's not? I'm drawn to several features about them. I love how beautiful they are. There is just something dreamy and otherworldly and mesmerizing about jellies. And I've been drawn to that since the very first time I laid eyes on them. But as a scientist, I'm also drawn to how different they are and how unknown they are. And they're incredibly primitive beings. You know, they've been around for a half a billion years, and that's pretty interesting. They've got a lot of aspects of their biology and ecology that are just fascinating, and yet they're so poorly studied and so poorly known that it's like every time you look at them, you can discover amazing new stuff. And I really like that aspect as a scientist to be able to make so many discoveries of new species, new behaviors, new aspects of biology and ecology. It's kind of addictive to discover new stuff. (laughs) So jellies, you call them jellies? Yeah, jellies or jellyfish. Well, you say there's so much about them. They are indeed very strange. They look like nothing else. (laughs) Um, How do they work? How do they function? Well, they function in ways that we simply can't relate to. They have no brain, no blood, no heart, no bones. Pretty much, they're just a bag of goo with a stomach and a really primitive nerve net and gonads. That's it. Gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there are many, many, many of them. And basically, are they all alike there? You know, these pulsating things that get around <laughs> by taking in water and squeezing out water? Well, no, they're not. So some of them have, you know, the umbrella sort of body with the hanging down tentacles and all that. And others have these really weird shapes that defy imagination called comb jellies, comb like comb your hair. And they have these eight rows of cilia that refract the light into rainbows. Cilia are little fingers? Yeah, little kind of little hairs, you know. And they have these weird little plates of cilia and when they the plates beat all rhythmically, that's how they move. So they don't go pulse, pulse, pulse 
like familiar jellies do. The comb jellies, it's more like tractor motion of these ciliary plates. And they send off these beautiful rainbows of light. They're just dreamy little things, but they are absolutely alien. And I mean, if I believed in things being from outer space, they would be it. <laughs> because they're weird. Some of them look like Klingon attack vessels. And some of them look like the Batman logo. And some of them look like belts. And some of them look like a grape with two tentacles. Like, come on. <laughs> How could you not love these? Of course, we know jellyfish because we meet them in the sea and it's, ow! <laughs> they so, do sting. <laughs> do all of them sting? Just about all of them. Almost all jellyfish species have stinging cells. But many of the species that do have stinging cells, they're not able to inflict damage on us or a, a sting. Some are fairly mild, some are a little bit more ouchy, and some are fully screamingly painful. And of course, some are actually deadly. You say they're half a billion years old. Have they changed vastly over that period of time? Or don't we know? Because obviously well, they don't persevere in the uh, no, fossil No, but they, they do. They oh. do. That's what's so interesting. They do make fossils. They don't leave big, meaty fossils like dinosaur legs. It's more like a footprint. And the fossils they leave do tell us quite a bit about what they looked like. And the amazing thing is they look and act just like modern-day jellies. So, no, they haven't changed, and I find this absolutely fascinating. So if you think about, since jellyfish have been around, about 585 million years that we know from fossil evidence, and about a billion years that we know from DNA evidence, so we know they've been around for a long, long time. And so this is what's so fascinating to me, is that while other things have evolved into this staggering array of life. We've got things that swim, we've got things with fins, we've got things that have grown legs, we've got things that have walked on land and learned to breathe, we've got things that have created fur and feathers and wings and they've learned to fly. You know, all these incredible array of animal life that has evolved in that time since jellyfish first swam the seas or, well, drifted really. And they haven't changed because they haven't needed to. So what they do works. It's that simple. But what's really amazing, even more than that, is what we're doing as a normal part of being human. You know, our waste and our coastal construction and our fishing and our carbon dioxide and all of these things we are creating a world for jellyfish that they're loving. We're giving them the biggest break of their entire history. I was going to yeah, ask yeah. you, in fact, you know, what is the ideal circumstance for a jellyfish? What would be an ideal sort of habitat for jellyfish? And well. you tell me that... We've basically created that for them. So what Absolutely, is it? yeah. If you think about, if you're an animal... And every day is a struggle to find food, a struggle not to be someone else's food, a struggle to grow fast enough to reproduce before you become food or die of some other way. Imagine a world where somebody else does you the favor of taking out your predators and competitors. Well, that's pretty cool. And imagine a world where somebody else warms up the water that you're living in so you grow faster, eat more. Of course, there's more food available because the competitors are gone, right? 
you reproduce more, and you live longer to do more of it. You'd be pretty happy. Jellyfish don't have a brain, so I think they're not actually happy, right? But man, they're loving it. <laughs> so we've basically done so much fishing of the top predators mm. that the things that ate jellyfish aren't there so much anymore. Yeah, so you think about jellyfish are eaten by turtles. Well, we've taken out a lot of turtles, and a lot of turtles have died not necessarily only from fishing, but by having less food available and by plastic and beaches having lights. And we're creating a world that's pretty hostile to turtles. So, you know, fewer turtles, more jellies. There's a fair few types of fish that only eat jellyfish, but, you know, we seem to be taking those out too. And a lot of crabs eat jellyfish and we're taking those out too. Like the blue swimmer crabs that, you know, it's like everybody's favorite crab. Yeah, those eat jellyfish, but we take a lot of those out. Well, I think many of us who've been swimming to our favorite swimming holes have discovered you can't go in because what's there? Lots and lots and lots of jellyfish. So there really is a plague of jellyfish, as it they, were. They are having a renaissance in many, many places. Of course, not every place has been overrun by jellies, of course. And of course, not every species of jellyfish is, you know, absolutely rambunctious and out of control. Some species are actually suffering from the changes we're causing in the environment. But there are some jellies that are doing really, really, really well. <laughs> and, uh, they're just causing untold problems for all sorts of marine industries from tourism where they're stinging people or people are afraid of being stung to power plants that are having emergency shutdowns to salmon farms to fishing vessels and, of course, ecosystems that are being taken over with jellyfish as the top predator. And that just bends your mind backwards. Like, you think about, hang on, jellyfish is the top predator. What about fish and sharks and whales. It's not that they're eating sharks, but they eat the food that the food of the food of sharks would eat. And so jellyfish are able to cripple an ecosystem at the ankles. So they basically are eating the plankton, which would have fed the little fish, which would have fed the bigger fish, which would have fed the sharks. That's exactly right. Or maybe one or two more levels in there. But yeah, so jellyfish are eating the eggs and larvae of quite large species. And they also eat the plankton that the larvae would eat. So yeah, this double whammy of predation and competition is pretty incredible. Simple, but incredible. Now, there are other problems that jellyfish cause, particularly why do they cause problems for power plants? Yeah, so power plants seem to be a really interesting thing with jellies. So basically it goes like this. You've got a power plant, might be nuclear, might be coal-fired, might be whatever. But if it draws cooling water from the ocean or an estuary or, you know, anything where jellyfish could conceivably be, when jellyfish bloom into superabundances, these power plants suck in all these jellies and the engines that are cooled by the seawater shut down. It could be potentially catastrophic if the plant weren't shut down proactively. So we have managed to create for ourselves a real problem with these creatures that you really love. What can we do about it? Well, I get this question a lot, as you might imagine. There are people making a lot of money 
developing products based on jellyfish to stimulate fishing of jellyfish. And I say, go for it. Seriously, I think that's great. I don't have any problem with that. Some of them are a bit misguided, but I mean, we have to learn that way, right? But there are some that I think are really good products that are useful and I'm completely supportive. Things like? Oh, like paper towels, you know, jellyfish are highly absorbent, things like fat-free egg replacement for baked goods. So some of these things are actually quite interesting. And of course, Asian cuisines have been using jellyfish as a delicacy for thousands of years. But I don't think it'll change the fact of the blooms. Even if they fish out a particular species, the next one in line will take its place. I think if we really want to change this dynamic... We have to actually change the reasons the jellyfish are blooming. They're not blooming because they're evil. They bloom as a natural part of their life cycle, and they respond to environmental conditions. They're blooming because the things that we are doing as humans is giving them the perfect conditions to bloom. So as long as we keep giving them fewer fish, warmer water, more nutrients in coastal ecosystems, more coastal construction, et cetera, et cetera, they're going to continue to bloom because that's what they do. Lisa Ann Gershwin in conversation with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. For photos of the rainbow comb jellies and other species, visit our website, LOE.org. Time for a flight of fancy now, way up over the warm southern oceans with one of the most iconic and breathtaking of all tropical seabirds. But as Michael Stein explains, this is a seabird with an unusual aversion to the actual water. Soaring above the warm oceans of the world, frigate birds cut a distinctive profile. Huge, slim, angular black birds with a seven-foot wingspan and long, scissor-like tails. They blithely chase down smaller birds like boobies to steal their fishy prey or drop to just above the surface and snatch fish from the water. Perched atop a rocky islet or dead mangrove tree, they look like seagoing vultures. But one thing you'll never see is a frigate bird floating on the ocean because their feathers, unlike those of nearly all other seabirds, are not waterproof. Instead, the frigate bird is a master of staying aloft. Tracking devices placed on frigate birds near Madagascar showed that they often stay in the air for a month and a half at a time. They'll soar above the ocean, riding a complex roller coaster of air. Intentionally flying into a cumulus cloud, which has a powerful updraft, they may rise as high as two and a half miles into the frigid atmosphere. From this high point, a frigate bird can glide more than 35 miles without flapping its wings, which is how this seabird that can't get its feathers wet survives over the open ocean. I'm Michael Stein. For pictures of these majestic frigate birds, coast on over to our website, LOE.org. Next time on Living on Earth, fish farming is big in China, and there have been lots of questions about hygiene and quality. One tilapia farmer has a novel plan to reassure consumers. We will now proceed to do something no one in the industry has done before. Put a camera 
system into the farm area. A customer who buys a bag of fish, you have a QR code on the bag. Please take our challenge, run your smartphone through our QR code on the bag, and you will have a chance to see the actual farm that raised this fish in your bag and how it's been raised. Tap on 24 hours a day, stay as long as you like, and see what we do to the farm and the fish in the farm. The promise of better quality in the new wave of fish farming in China, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week on a secluded beach along the central California coast. The mesmerizing sounds of the Pacific at Big Sur. If you listen closely, you'll hear some barking sea lions as well. Bernie Krause recorded them for his Wild Sanctuary CD, Ocean Dreams. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Aidan Connolly, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Alex Metzger, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jennifer Marquis, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade, Jake Rigo, and Noel Flatt. Allison Lerish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI. Public Radio International.